We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 2021 NFL Draft is officially behind us, and that's a good thing because I know that some of you haven't been going outside and getting the sweet, sweet oxygen and vitamin D that you should be getting. And how do I know this? You've been trapped in your basement, and you've been on the computer or on your phone sending me these crazy mock drafts from PFF for the Draft Network, uh, and uh, none of those scenarios actually ended up happening. I, I don't know who the Chargers took but it probably wasn't anyone you projected to them, because that's Tom Telesco. Anyway, now that you can go outside again, you need to shave that beard off your face, or you need to shave your grundle down there. Whatever you need to do because you've been ignoring your hygiene is that you want to go to manscaped.com and use code GUILTY for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's manscaped.com and use code GUILTY for 20% off your first purchase. It's on us. At least 20% of it is on us. 80% of it will be on you. But... Fix your hygiene and stop sending me your mock drafts. At least I get a reprieve for eight months. And you get a reprieve for my shitty draft takes, too. Oh, my God. You guys are going to start sending me your 2022 mock drafts, aren't you? Hey, Chargers fans, welcome into the Guilty as Charged podcast. My name is Steven. I'm your host. Got a fun show planned for you guys. Going to have a great interview with Brendan Sinone later on in the episode. Uh, I was able to chat with him about the two players from Florida State. Technically, Trey McKitty did play at Florida State as well. So uh, talking to him about Asante Samuel Jr. and Trey McKitty. And then we're kind of just going to go over some of the remnants from the draft you know, kind of some of the takeaways that we've been able to have from, you know, kind of sitting on the draft and then, you know, just getting some into some general takes of things we got right, things we got wrong uh, in terms of, you know, the league in, in general. So we'll get all of that started. But first and foremost, my guys here, Tyler and Alex. Tyler, we'll start with you. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing very, very well, but I really have this itch to just swear throughout this entire podcast. <laughs> Don't quite know why, but um, I'm feeling it. I'll try to keep it at bay, though. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Alex, how are you doing today, dude? Doing pretty fucking good today. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah, no, it's a pretty good day and uh, just, just excited to start the show. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. Um, so first and foremost, uh, we do have some unfortunate news uh, to talk about, and that is Casey Hayward 
signing with the Las Vegas Raiders, much to the chagrin of, of everyone on Chargers Twitter. Um, it, it was kind of predictable, right? Once Gus Bradley left there, we kind of assumed that, you know, some of the former Chargers players would go there. Um, you know, they reportedly went after Rayshon Jenkins, and, and then Rayshon ended up getting a huge bag from the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, so right now it looks like they just have Casey Hayward, but um, Alex, what's your kind of takeaway from the Raiders signing Casey Hayward? I mean, it makes a lot of sense for them. I mean, they, I mean, Casey Hayward might be their best corner right now uh, <laughs> at this current moment. Uh, I mean, Trayvon Mullen yeah. has shown moments of kind of development. He had a good September, but then kind of fell off the rest of the year. And Damon Arnett, who was their first round pick in 2020, is currently kind of unplayable. So, like, they want some more development out of him. They bring in Hayward to kind of stabilize the group, pretty much be a bridge corner. Um, So, yeah, I I wasn't too surprised by Casey's decision to go there and also the familiarity with Gus Bradley, of course. Um, As for how much better it makes them, I mean, you know, I don't feel like it makes that that much better just because, you know, Casey had a rough year last year and usually when corners hit that, bad season after 30 they don't usually have a rebound year um I wouldn't say that it's impossible because Hayward was hurt last year and maybe this year he's luckier with his health but um I I think it's more of a stabilizing move for the Raiders than it is a you know ceiling raising move for the secondary amazing how fast their secondary has potentially we don't know how the rookies will be has started to turn over before it was certainly a weakness I still think it's a weakness but, you know, if you want to be Gus Bradley and only rush four, which he's going to try to do despite their personnel, you know, yeah. at least have some good guys on the back end. And, you know, a guy you know, like guy, like you said, is, is probably their best, like, DB on the team. I like Merrick a lot, but I want to see what he does on the field first. Right. Um, so it's a good spot for him. A lot of fans are bagging on him for his, his picture, where he looks miserable. <laughs> I personally didn't think he looked miserable. I just thought he was trying to make, like, a I look like hot shit face, and it just looked like he was kind of <laughs> Like, he's not good at it, you know, so... So just poorly um, executed picture. Poorly executed, yeah. I think he legitimately did not try to look like, you know, super miserable. But no one really looks good in silver and black anyway. So that is true. That is 100% true. It's definitely a little disappointing. Um, but, you know, I think obviously players look at – they don't look at rivalries the same way that we do, right? And so Casey's looking at this as kind of his last hurrah. He gets to reunite with Gus Mil- or Gus Ron Milas, rather. And Gus Bradley, coaches who he's very familiar with um, and have done a lot for his career. So it it sucks. I'm not going to, like, wish him well, but I'm not going to root (laughs) against him either. You know, there was a lot of, like, oh, I can't wait to see Jalen Guyton burn him. And it's like, okay, like, that's a little – I'm not vibing with that one. I definitely don't want to see him have his best game against the Chargers, but uh, Mm -hmm. I'm definitely not rooting for him to fail miserably against the Chargers either. So – um, you know, kind of an expected move once everything kind of settled. They apparently were trying to figure out if they could get Richard Sher- Sherman first and then uh, settled on, on Casey Hayward. So uh, we'll have to see. But I'm not, like, super worried about it like Alex was saying. And neither are we. Cool. So uh, the other thing that I kind of wanted to talk about today before we get into some of the other stuff uh I did go back and watch some tape on Chris Rump from his 2019 season, um, and I no longer think that that was the worst pick of the Chargers draft. And, you know, watching that tape, I can see some traits, some workability that Brandon Staley could look at 
and say, all right, I, I can work with this. I can, you know, maybe mold him into something, you know, beyond that. Um, but I, I'm still concerned. Like, it, I'm not, I'm not going to get to the point where, you know, I'm going to outright praise the pick as like my favorite day three pick or somebody that I think is going to have, you know, an instant impact. But I can see some traits, some workability. And so I just wanted to clarify that. I know I was kind of hard on the pick last time uh, or on our last episode. So I just wanted to clarify, I no longer think that it was the worst pick of the draft. Um, but I, do, I am still, you know, a little concerned with what they're getting in, in terms of, you know, the lack of strength of the power of attack and the lack of bend around the corners. But I, like I said, I, I'm a little more on board than I was last time. I see. Hey, yeah, yeah, Rump, very cool. Now, what do you think is the worst pick <laughs> in the draft? <laughs> well, it's a tough question, right, because I really like the player, but it, to me it has to be Trey McKitty because I think the value at that point is is the worst value of the draft, and I'm not as low on Larry Roundtree as Alex is. Um, I actually do really like him there, and it's a six-run running back, so who freaking cares at that point? Um, but Trey McKitty really, really. Can we talk about how? Can we talk about? Can we talk about how Brandon Stanley said he wanted to pick him earlier? Because that <laughs> reminded me of Anthony Lynn saying he wanted to take Joshua Kelly in the third round. Yeah. Um, not to say that you know Stanley's going to be Lynn, but you know the whole overvaluing running backs thing is tad concerning. Yeah, that was a little concerning. But, yeah, just from a value standpoint, I think it has to be Trey McKitty, unfortunately, because I do really like the player. Um, but it just kind of seems like looking back on it that they had their eye on Tommy Tremble, and then Tommy Tremble went, uh, I think it was like seven picks before them, and then it was like, oh, shit, we got to grab our blocking tight end. So that's just kind of my perception of it. But, again, I do really like the player. I I mean, I still think Ron is the worst pick of the draft. Uh, but, like – but then you say it's a six-round guy, and it was your second six-round pick. So, like, I guess it is McKitty. As far as Rumpf goes, it's that's a, such a hard one. I've never found a player that I think is just so difficult. Maybe because he's on the Chargers now, and I really have to think about it. Yeah. Whereas Sean Wade, it's like, great 2019, horrendous 2020. Therefore, I can just be like, eh, I don't like him. But now he's Rumpf is on the team, so I'm trying to think of right. know, what he does well. Personally, like, I see what he did well in 2019, and he does that in 2020. He's a good inside pass rusher. Um, either as an edge guy working inside against a tackle or standing up and working against a guard and rushing on the inside. Um, but, like, he like he still isn't good against the run in, in, the, in that UNC game. He still yeah. gets blown off the ball in that game. He doesn't really have a whole lot of pass rush arsenal on the outside. Um, so the concerns are definitely still there. And then, I mean, spoiler alert for the video breakdown I'm going to do, between his reps against Banks, Eichenberg, and Darasaw, I think he won, like, one rep out of, like, 30. Yeah. So um, and, and those are, you know, guys that are draftable and, and good tackles or guards. So uh, we'll see. We'll see about him. But, yeah, definitely not the worst pick in the draft. Congratulations on, you know, you know, looking to watching film, being mature about it, and being able to change your stance on these things. That's more than I can say about most of Chargers Twitter. <laughs> Thank you. I will say, like, there, he's – aside from the strength and the frame, which he definitely has to fill into – I, I never saw any kind of counters towards the outside from him. And mm-hmm. every single time he tries to rush and counter towards the inside, and that's not going to fly in the NFL. That's not going to fly when you're trying to counter inside and there's Quentin Nelson. So, <laughs> you know, as Melvin Ingram found yeah. out, you know, a couple of years ago. So, or even, you know, going up against someone like Creed Humphrey, like that's not going to fly. Landon Dickerson, 
So him trying to counter inside every single time is not going to go very well for him. Um, so like I said, I still don't see like a super bendy, twitchy athlete. You know, he's going to have to figure out how to make an impact on the outside. He's not going to be able to rush against guards every single rep like Duke had him doing against North Carolina, which was fun. It was entertaining, but it's also infuriating because I'm like, I want to see this edge rusher rush from the edge. Stop right. having him rush against the guards. Um, so there's definitely a lot of things that he's going to have to work on. But, you know, we said uh, on Sunday, you know, you see glimpses of it. And I think in 2019, the glimpses are more frequent. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of my thought process is here is I'm like, okay, I can see more of things happening, which is weird because he was more productive in 2020. But, you know, Tyler and I were having this conversation. A lot of his production in 2020 was, you know, rushing against guards and doing stunts where he's looping from one guard all the way around to the opposite side. Um, so, there, like I said, there's definitely a little more upside there than I initially thought, um, but I'm still a little concerned. They're still not ready to, like, you know, if he's playing 20 snaps a game, I'm concerned. But if he's playing five, six snaps as a rotational pass rusher, playing on special teams as a rookie, developing, filling, filling out his frame, then I think that's okay. I just wonder how much uh, when we look at, like, this college season in general uh, of these players were affected by, like, is the season happening? Is it not happening? Both mentally, physically, right? Um, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, the Pac-12 really didn't know what was happening until the buzzer. Uh, the SEC and ACC were sort of, like, always kind of going on, but then, you know, they canceled and didn't, you know, whatever. Um, but so, I don't know, I... I I wonder about that looking at, like, a player's performance declining when we talk about, like, Sean Wade, like Tyler mentioned, yeah. um, or potentially Chris Rumpf. Like, that that's something that just sticks in my mind. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we'll have to ask, like, I don't know. Like, you've got to ask these players if they really felt like they were affected by it or not. So um, interesting thing to keep an eye on. The other thing we wanted to talk about before getting into this interview is just kind of, you know, we did our graft our draft grades, right? And all three of us gave an A- minus to the Chargers. And they're getting a lot of praise for what they did this weekend. And I think, you know, there is definitely some frustration on Chargers Twitter about, you know, the day three picks. And, you know, we, we are all kind of in agreement about at least, you know, the round tree pick not making a whole lot of sense. Um, but you look at, you know, Pro Football Focus giving the Chargers, like, the third best draft overall. And, like, CBS Sports is, like, the fourth. And Mel Kuyper gave them an A. So, it's a little interesting that, like, there's this outside perception of the Chargers nailed it, the Chargers did awesome, and then you log on to Twitter, you search, you know, Dan Wolkenstein, you pull up that thread, and everybody's just banging on the Chargers picks on Chargers Twitter. So um, I guess, you know, Tyler, what's your kind of takeaway of the thought process of, you know, nationally it looks great, and then on Chargers Twitter, you know, there's a lot of mixed emotions there. I think I would have been part of that crowd, honestly, that was a little bit on the more negative side um, in years in years past. Um, I know, like, we're covering it, uh, them on Bolt Beat and, and now here, like, you've had to do a little bit more homework. So you're able to kind of, like, settle down, don't react to the pick immediately and, and figure things out. But, you know, I think I would have been negative on it. But I'm being completely honest, like, your perspective on someone like Brendan Hymas or, or Josh Palmer or, or uh, Nick Neiman, you know, some of these guys, and even Trey McKitty, you know, we've – whether we talk about it on the podcast or not, or on Twitter or not, I'm pretty sure that the three of us have DM'd about pretty much 
every player that we could possibly think of that the Chargers could take, might take, might fit here, whatever. You know, so interacting with you guys, and, and all three of us have watched a certain amount of players, um, but, you know, Steven had, you know, the Palmer and McKitty thing a little bit more, I think. That makes me, I think, a little bit more positive. So I think, you know, based on, okay, so like that thread was wild to me because I saw, <laughs> like, to me, I was more measured with the picks because you had talked about these players. And, you know, and of course, Brennan Thorne talks about, you know, high mess. And it's like, okay, I'm going to trust these opinions. And that's why I, I think these, these picks are okay. Um, but it seemed like for a while that, that fans were like, okay, I don't know who this person is, so I don't like them. But then like the next morning, everyone's going, I've kind of softened on this a little bit. I've, I've kind of grown to like these picks because I get it. Maybe it's not the best player. Maybe it's not the safety that they needed, but I like the player. And Staley wanted him, and Staley has a vision. You hear it through Telesco, through Staley, you know, through the interviews or whatever. You know, Staley had a vision for it. He wanted these guys. Um, so I think people are starting to warm up to that. But as far as that thread went, I don't know what happened. Because even even the thread question is just, you know, do you like the draft overall? And people are like, no, I don't like their third round, you know, second third round pick. And I was like, I don't think you kind of missed the whole point of the thing. So it is a little <laughs> bit, it is a little bit wild. Um, I don't know. I, maybe there's a more vocal majority than that. I completely missed the first time around, but it seems like people were down and then they back up. And then based on that thread, we're kind of somewhere in the middle now. So not really sure what's going on. Yeah. Um, I think the thing is that you just can't weigh every pick evenly. Like you can't just put, right, right. you know, uh, Rashawn Slater, you know, all the way down to Mark Webb and just weigh all those picks evenly because they're not all equally important. And that's why I think you see some of the national media be like, well, they got Rashawn Slater. They answered their question at left tackle. They, you know, got Asante Samuel. They answered their question at cornerback. And then after that point, you know, a lot of it is about depth. So, you know, you may get an analyst that's like, eh, I don't know about Chris Rumpf, but, sure. you know, they nailed, you know, <laughs> everything else in those first three rounds, right? So that, I think, is part of it, whereas, you know, uh, Chargers fans in comparison are more, uh, I guess, they might be more uh, entitled to just be like, oh, well, I like this pick, this pick, don't like this pick, right? You know, Um, and I'm guilty of that, too. I mean, I was kind of doing that on Saturday, to be fully honest, Uh, you know, when it just came to day three. um, And I think with more casual fans, there definitely is like, well, I know this player and I don't know this player. So therefore that this (laughs) this pick is bad, right? Versus, you know, uh, how many of us knew who, you know, Antonio Gates was as an undrafted free agent who played basketball, right? (laughs) uh, And then he turns out to be an all-time great, right? So um, I I do think there just is like, well, you know, everybody's watched maybe – I don't know if everybody's watched, but everybody's heard of like probably a hundred different guys. And then if, you know, in the field of 250, if they take a guy that you're not familiar with, then the instant reaction is to be um, sort of negative about it. So I I definitely think that plays into it when we talk about like Chargers Twitter or something. But um, no, as far as the national media, I mean, I think the national media just looks at it as they filled all their major needs. They got the players they wanted. And, you know, that's kind of it. That kind of is what it is. Um, I think they were third on Dane Brugler's, like, you know, uh, c- combination of all of the grades. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that makes sense. You know, I, I gave them an A minus. And despite not liking all of their day three picks, like we talked about, like, they just did such a great job on day one and two. And, you know, the day three picks matter less. Right. So that's that's where I see the side of the national media. But I also do see the side of Chargers Twitter not loving every day three pick for sure. 
Yeah, I think it's definitely normal to criticize what the Chargers have done. And, and you know, we, we've been able to have that kind of balance, you know, where we talk about Rashawn Slater and Asante Samuel Jr., but then we also, you know, take a step back and criticize some of the other picks. And I think it's normal that you don't love every pick, especially when yeah. you have nine draft picks. And so, right. you know, you're going to get an Alohi Gilman and a Larry Roundtree essentially every single draft just because of the sheer volume of players that are entering the league. So I think, I think it's totally normal to say, Hey, I don't like this pick. I don't get it. You know, obviously all three of us talked about our, you know, our least favorite picks, but like Alex said, it, it's tough for me to sit back and look at someone and say, I hated the Larry, their Larry Roundtree pick. So I hate the draft as a whole. And it's like, well, <laughs> there were eight other picks. Like you've got to be able to have that balance. And, you know, I think a lot of teams approach the draft very differently on Dre on day three where some teams will try and take a swing on someone like Trey Smith, right? You know, who ha- carries this huge medical risk, but the talent is so, so high. Other teams like the Chargers will target players who they know that can contribute on special teams, and if they develop into more than that, great. If not, they're a seventh-round pick. They're a sixth-round pick. And so Alex kind of pointed it out, that you know, the 2017 draft class for the Chargers, you have Mike Williams and you have Rayshon Jenkins who are – getting extensions or, you know, are going to be able to have long-term futures. But then you have a guy like Sam Tevy that's, you know, on a different team and Isaac Rochelle that's on a different team and they signed a one-year deal. So the reality of the NFL is that most of these day three picks are probably not getting second contracts. And so if you get some special teams value from them, if they, if you do hit on them, then it turns into a great pick. Right. And, you know, people talk about, like, the concept of bad drafts, too. Like, oh, well, the 2017 draft is explainable because Telesco is a bad drafter. But I also link that Chiefs one from 2017 where they have Mahomes, they have uh, uh, Tanoa Paseño, and they have Kareem Hunt in the first three rounds. And it's like they nailed it, but, uh, you know, Kareem Hunt, for not off-the-field reasons, is on a different team. Yeah. Uh, Tanoa Paseño signed with the Saints. And three of the other guys that they took aren't in the league anymore. <laughs> like, and Mahomes, it's it's a win because they took Mahomes and he's right. the best quarterback for the NFL. Like, you know, so I, I think there's that part of it. Um, as far as, like, the, the draft picks and liking them kind of thing, like, I don't expect to like every draft pick. I'm not Tom right. Telesco and I'm not Brandon Staley. Like, <laughs> unless I'm running the team, I'm not going to like every draft pick. And if I ran a team, it would probably be trash. <laughs> I would like, I would probably take a receiver in the second round and go crazy with it. Bro, you would take a Hans on Nazarene at 90. You would take a Hans at 77, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably would have. Um, and point that like I just don't think anyone is like above criticism either because a lot of people in the YouTube comments of our last video were like oh we gotta you know get time for the Staley vision and it's too early to criticize them it's like nah like I knew Trey Pipkins was a bad pick at the time and I'm gonna (laughs) criticize them when they make a bad pick now you know like I don't care if you're Tom Telesco or you're Bill Belichick like if I like something I like something and if I don't like something I'm gonna criticize it you know Bill Belichick pulled his one of his best cornerbacks off the field in the Super Bowl uh and Mm. also doesn't know how to draft a receiver so to me, no one is above criticism, um, but also, you know, we shouldn't short people of praise just because, oh, you know, Asante Samuel Jr. fell into their lap or Ray yeah. Slater fell into right. their lap, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> Any other thoughts there, Tyler? No, not really. 
Okay. I think the bottom line, though, like we talked about last time, if Rashawn Slater and Sante Samuel Jr. turn out to be the kind of players that we all believe that they can be, then people are going to look back on this draft and be like, damn, they got a true cornerback one, they got a franchise left tackle, and if that's the case, then that's an A-plus draft, and and that's that's all everybody's going to remember. So uh, we're going to get to this interview right now with Brendan Sinone from uh, 247 Sports, Knowles 247. Had a great conversation with him about Asante Sammy Jr. and Trey McKitty. So, as always, if you're watching us on YouTube, that's going to be in a different clip. Uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast platform, that's going to start right now. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcast. All right, Chargers fans, welcome back to the Guilty as Charged podcast. I'm so happy to be joined by Brendan Sonone, who covers the Florida State Seminoles, who obviously the Chargers have a budding connection with the Seminoles with all the players recently coming in. Um, so Brendan, uh, pardon me, I should say, covers the, the Florida State Seminoles for 247 Sports, does a wonderful job there. Brendan, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's an honor to be here and, and uh, be talking about, I guess, FSU West, uh, which is uh, <laughs> which is the Chargers these days. Yeah, it's been obviously a lot of you know great fun having Derwin James on the roster, and then you know they got Gabe Neighbors as an undrafted mm-hmm. free agent, and then this year, you know, they really uh, drafted two really great players that I'm really excited about, uh, Inosante Samuel Jr. and Trey McKitty. Uh, Trey McKitty obviously finished his career at Georgia, but, you know, I wanted to get uh, Brandon's thoughts on his uh, his career, starting his career at Florida State. So just in general, before we dive into both of these players, what was your reaction when the Chargers drafted Asante Samuel Jr. with the 47th overall pick this year? So so my initial thought was one that's, that's really great value uh, because I'm a big draft nerd and I have my own like big board and I scout like hundreds of guys like just for just for fun is what I do in, in the off season so yeah. I had I had 
I had Asante as like a top 30 prospect or so. And I, I wasn't sure if he was going to go in the first round because, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it, but his, his size limitations and, and being five foot 10, about like a buck 85, he, he doesn't fit the prototype in that regard. So I thought maybe, you know, when, with all these mock drafts having to go in the first round, that was a little generous, but, but in terms of, uh, you know, the, the caliber of player he is, I thought, okay, like, you know, once he got past like the 40 range, I'm like, okay, this, this will be the time where we should see him. And we start getting to the late 40s, and I start getting a little nervous for Asante, to be honest. I wasn't really sure, like, okay, is there a, a big drop coming? But then obviously the Chargers come in at, at 47 overall. And, and uh, yes, even my, my thought was, like, that's legitimately really good value for, for him, for a player 100%. of his caliber of that spot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so excited for them. You know, we we were talking before this. You know, the Chargers getting Rashawn Slater in the first round, Asante Samuel in the second in the second round. Mm-hmm. You know, it could not have gone better for them. Um, I, I think the Chargers surprised a lot of people when they took Trey McKitty, um, with their second third round pick at 97. Uh, what was your reaction there when when they did make that selection? Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a little early, just based on again what all the pundits were saying and. And, you know, Trey McKitty had a nice career at Florida State and, and some of the metrics at Georgia. And I obviously lost, um, you know, some track of him when he transferred from FSU to Georgia. But he was dinged up early on at Georgia and didn't play the full season. The metrics were, were pretty good for him. He was efficient, but uh, didn't have huge numbers. So I was, thought that would, like, maybe suppress his draft stock. But uh, obviously the Chargers feel like they saw something uh, different in, in him and, and saw a complete tight end. So yeah, I thought it was, like, maybe a round or two earlier than what I was expecting. But uh, Trey, uh, you know, we'll talk about it. Trey has some tools to, to work with as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited about him as well. Um, so let's dive into the, you know, who these players are, because I think, you know, we see them, you know, most recently, and that's kind of, you know, what NFL fans are looking at it is who they were in 2020. What do you remember about Asante Samuel Jr.'s recruiting process? Obviously brought, you know, the name recognition, the pedigree, uh, to, you know, the recruiting process. So why did he choose Florida State, and what was kind of the reaction to him signing with the Seminoles? Yeah, he he was a big-time commitment. He was a big-time recruit. He was a top 100 guy or so, wire-to-wire. I think he finished, like, 60th uh, nationally in the 2018 recruiting class in the 24-7 sports composite rankings. And I remember at the time, myself and my co- my colleague Chris Nee were – we did a podcast at the time when, when he had – I think he had committed or when the final rankings come out. But we were trying to talk about, like, didn't think there was, like, 60 players better than him in the country. We honestly thought that was a little low. We thought he was more of, like, a top 40 type of player and, and a borderline okay. five-star. Uh, the big hindrance on him then as a recruit is the same thing now in the NFL. It's the size. That's really the only uh, consistent knock you'll get on him before he start getting nitpicky. Is that he, he was shorter. I think in high school he was about 165 pounds. So, yeah. so, he, so I mean, we're talking about thin. But but he was, I mean, obviously he had the name with his dad being Asante Samuel and uh, the one thing that was consistent, he played in South Florida. He played at St. Thomas Aquinas, which is a powerhouse in Fort Lauderdale. I mean, they, uh, you go ahead and pull up the NFL rosters, you will find, without looking too far, someone from St. Thomas Aquinas, especially at that point. Uh, they were just rolling them out. So he was a really good player. I had a really good program, uh, was also really good in, like, the seven-on-seven scenes and, and off-season stuff, too, because he was a competitor. Uh, people call him a dog, and, and he, he likes to call himself, like, an alpha dog. Like, that's something that he took pride in. I remember when he committed to Florida State, uh, or not after, so he committed under Jimbo Fisher's regime. Jimbo Fisher ends up leaving for Texas A&M. Willie yeah. Taggart comes in. They have to recruit 
re-recruit him basically because I think it was Miami and some other schools were, were going in on Asante Samuel Jr. because he's a good player and you, you're trying to get that vulnerability, right? That, that FSU leaves the door open there. <laughs> yeah. But FSU holds on to him. Willie Taggart did a really good job kind of kind of re-recruiting him. But Harlan Barnett, the defensive coordinator at the time, uh, told when he got Asante there for an official visit, he told the first thing he told Asante Samuel Jr. He's like, I like the look in your eyes. Like you look mad. And Asante, <laughs> oh, and, 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 and to us, Harlan's credit, Asante always played that way. Like Asante plays with a chip on his shoulder. He plays pissed off. I don't know entirely why, if it's just the size thing, if it's like, hey, I play the same position as my dad and, and have the same name and, and have that going for him. I've always felt like that's been kind of it. But, yeah, he was he was a big deal at the time when he committed to Florida State, and they were lucky to, to hold on to him. Was there ever any doubt that he was going to end up at Florida State? Like, what was that crystal ball process like for him? I, I'm trying to recall. I, I think it, was, it wasn't it was a super dramatic recruitment until Jimbo Fisher – left and then that opened the door okay. but Florida State did well to kind of close it in quickly and I think they got him in on the early signing period so it wasn't this long drawn out one uh, for whatever reason I don't know if he grew up a Florida State fan uh, but despite getting some push from Miami and, and some other schools like it wasn't this really uh, like Trey we'll get into Trey McKitty's I'm sure but like his process was a little bit more dramatic uh, than Asante's Asante's was pretty straightforward as a recruiting process Okay, so what uh, what was you know more dramatic about Trey McKitty? Because as far as I know, you know I didn't know who Trey McKitty was until he was at yeah. Georgia. So what was that process like for him? So he was a high end three star recruit. Uh, trying to think, so he was coveted by a handful of schools. Uh, Miami was always in the mix for him. Florida State was always in the mix for him. And he went to Bradenton. He's from Tampa area, uh, but went to Bradenton IMG Academy, which IMG Academy is a, another powerhouse. That's like a it's a that's not a private school. I think of how to describe it, but but it's basically it's just a pipeline for yeah, it's, it's a football school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. They go they play sports there at IMG Academy. It's what yeah. they do. Uh, it's like where the uh, yeah, this is where all the great athletes go and, and and for all different sports. It's immaculate facilities. So Trey yeah. McKitty went there, um, and he commits to Oregon in the summer ahead of his senior year. And I think he did it while he was like at one of the opening events or whatnot. And I remember there being some controversy at the time that his parents like weren't super thrilled with it. They wanted to get out there. They didn't want him to be all the way across the country. He's a Florida kid. They didn't want him to go literally across the country. Yeah. Um, ironic now that he's playing for the for the Chargers. But yeah, uh, he could have he could have been catching passes from Justin Herbert in college, and now oh, he's going to do true. it from the NFL. I didn't even, I didn't even think of that. Uh, I didn't even that's think of hilarious. that. Yeah, funny how life works out. But yeah. So he he's committed to Oregon for several months, and and Florida State never really stops recruiting him. That was the guy that they wanted. They targeted. Uh, they liked his potential as a as a pro style tight end because yeah he was more regarded as an athlete in in high school as a more athletic tight end but they saw some potential as someone who could be a good inline blocker as well he's serviceable uh, for what Jimbo Fisher liked to do so they kept recruiting him kept recruiting him now uh, interesting that that Willie Taggart ends up taking over at Oregon at the end of the season like in December oh um, <laughs> so he gets hired. Willie Taggart had a connection to Trey McKitty uh, because Willie Taggart was at USF Tampa. And I think Willie Taggart was his first offer at USF. Um, and, and really, I mean, McKitty liked the idea of like, okay, it's going to be a, a spread offense and I could be used as H backs, a slight slot wide receiver, uh, still do some inline blocking and, and stuff like that. But uh, ultimately the distance was the factor for Trey McKitty. The parents were just like not comfortable with it. And at the end of the day, uh, they get him back. Uh, Florida state gets him. And it was kind of like a long rumor, like, hey, it's probably going to happen. It does happen during the early signing period. FSU gets him. Uh, 
And then again, talking about ironic, then end up Willie Taggart a year later ends up coming yeah. to Florida State. <laughs> Remember Willie making a joke, being like, "Good thing you didn't burn any bridges, you know, the way you left." Um, and and so yeah, it was interesting recruitment for Trey McKinney, but FSU was really happy they got him at the time. That was one they put a lot, a lot of time into. Man, life really went full circle on various fronts for Trey McKitty there. Trey McKitty. <laughs> and, and one little tidbit on Trey McKitty, too, because he's going – I'll tie this one so he's going to have to fly cross-country a lot. He He's either getting his pilot's license or has gotten it. He's a different, Whoa. different, more cerebral type of guy, very thoughtful, uh, so not your typical, like, just head-in-the-dirt football player. He's, he's very um, balanced. So, yeah, he's working on getting his, his, his pilot's license as well. He may have already gotten it at this point. Wow, there we go. Some great info from from Brendan here. Um, you mentioned, you know, the the I don't want to say dramatic process of the Florida State coaching uh, staff. I don't know if that's an oh, accurate it, way to say it, that. It's it's been a dramatic few years, man. It's fine. It's it's been a bit of a cluster in Tallahassee. I think that's fair. Um, so you mentioned how that that kind of impacted Asante Samuel Jr. How did you see him handling that process? How did you see him grow? as a person, as, you know, a human being, as a young kid throughout his three years at Florida State? So Asante to me was so in three years. So he gets to Florida State in 2018. That's the first year of the Willie Taggart era. Again, it wasn't the coach he initially committed to, but he stays committed to Florida State. Uh, Harlan Barnett comes from Michigan State and runs this cover four press scheme that Asante, even though doesn't have the optimal size for, like the way he plays, the physicality, uh, the footwork that he brings, like, that's fine. They can work with all of those things. Things like Darquez Denard was maybe like 5'11 or so, if I'm not mistaken, and, and did really well at, at Michigan State. So uh, they like, we can work with this. So he steps in pretty early on, uh, doesn't start, but gets thrown to the fire and and has some really, like, big rookie moments, like learning curve stuff where against my – in a closely contested game against Miami that was pivotal for FSU that season, and, and they end up squandering, like, a 20-point lead – he gets picked on a couple times against Lawrence Cager, who's like six foot six and, and yeah. kind of a jump off specialist. Why Asante Samuels isolated two plays in a row in the red zone against Lawrence Cager? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but he, he, he defends the first one well. The second one, again, just like physics, like you're not going to be able to defend that no matter how good your technique is uh, all the time. They get a right. touchdown there. And then Asante also had a costly penalty on a blocked field goal, and I can't remember the game, but it was, again, he was trying to be aggressive. Uh, he's over-aggressive, gets a, gets a block, uh, gets a run into the kicker call, if I recall correctly, uh, and that ended up being a big moment, swing moment in that game. So so Asante kind of takes his lumps as a true freshman, uh, gives up, I think, six touchdowns. So, But he wasn't bad by any means. You could see the potential was there. I think people were really high on him. It just There was a true freshman that was thrown into the fire. Year two comes around. He establishes a starting par, a starting spot for himself, uh, but it's a different scheme kind of. They bring in uh, Harlan Barnett's a defensive coordinator, but then they bring in Jim Levitt like mid like two or three weeks into the season. It's like a shadow defensive coordinator. It's a really weird deal. It's a different scheme. FSU's trying to do all this weird hybrid stuff uh, that wasn't what Harlan Barnett was brought in to do. So, uh, and then you know Asante has a really good season in year two. Very. Um, I think the touchdowns gets cut down from like six to three, gets a couple interceptions, just more confident, clearly like stable, consistent, and kind of a, a port in the storm where there wasn't a whole lot of consistency on that defense or in the program. And then year three, a new coaching a new coaching staff, a new scheme with Adam Fuller, a lot more man coverage, which Asante really thrived in. Um, and again, the touchdowns go down, I think, from from either three or two to, to one. He only allowed one this year uh, per PFF. So he got consistently better every year, and he handled his business. I think that's the one thing, Stephen, that was really uh, 
really stood out to me was that he was they never had to push him particularly like hard because he was always the one kind of setting the tone. Remember Mike Norvell talking about early on in preseason camp, there was one day where he did have to kind of get after Asante a little bit, but it was almost more like just to see what Asante would do and respond to it. And Asante just kind of looked at him and was like, I got you. And Norvell loved it. Like, and I'm sure Norvell talked about Asante really glowingly during the pre-draft process yeah. to teams uh, because Asante was just someone in, in a locker room that was hesitant and skeptical to buy into another coach and Mike Norvell and, and all that was pretty well documented that Norvell had some issues in year one with guys trusting him and a lot of turnover. Asante wasn't one of those issues. Uh, he was someone who bought in right away, just handled his business. I remember after the Georgia Tech game in the opener of 2020 uh, season, you know, FSU loses. It was inexplicably so. It was just like kind of like, oh, here we go again. They start off strong. There's a, they, they march down the field on their opening drive, score a touchdown, offense looks sharp, and then there's like a 30-minute, 40-minute rain delay, and then another one, and all of a sudden like they come back out and they're just flat and they lose that game. Asante Samuel had two interceptions that game. I remember walking Dang. back to the parking garage afterwards, and Asante Samuel was in his car and just kind of like driving by smiling. You could tell he wasn't like down. He wasn't happy with himself either. He was just really content. You could just tell that was someone who just went and handled his business that day and knew he left it on the field and did what he could. And I just, that always struck me as like, that just seemed like Asante's demeanor, just really even keeled, kind of content with what he was doing. Uh, and just someone who, again, like did what he was supposed to do consistently. That's how I remember Asante and his growth and who he was at FSU. That That's fantastic insight. And I've always said this, I think one of the most important aspects of playing the cornerback position in the NFL is being able to stay even keeled and be who you are every single week, every single quarter, regardless of, you know, what's going on around you. So that that's great stuff. What was college like for Trey McKinney? Because you mentioned him as a cerebral guy, you know, getting mm-hmm. his pilot license. So what kind of growth did you see from Trey over his years at Florida State? Yeah, so Trey comes in as a true freshman, and it's the 2017 season, and that's Jimbo Fisher's last year. It's a weird year. Uh, it, it starts off with DeAndre Francois tearing his ACL and, and all sorts of ligaments in his knee in that season opener against Alabama. And it's just built as, like, the opener of the century or whatever. It's yeah. one Alabama versus three FSU. And um, the FSU has a chance to go ahead early in that game and go into halftime, and, and there's a penalty that's not called. And, and lo and behold, Alabama just pulls away and does what Alabama does. DeAndre Francois gets hurt at the end of the game. And after that, man, the season kind of turns into a, a cluster. There's a hurricane that crazy, creates a delay. And all of a sudden, FSU's playing James Blackman, who's a true freshman who was not supposed to play until, like, his redshirt sophomore year. Or so and he's playing mm-hmm. two or three years at it. He's, like, 165 pounds, uh, six-foot-five quarterback. Like, he, he's – it was just a bad situation. Uh, so Trey McKitty ends up getting some burn later in this year. Uh, I think he ends up yeah, – I'm pulling up the numbers now. He gets 91 snaps. Uh, so he plays a little bit as a, as a true freshman, shows some good signs, actually, like uh, like as a receiver and as a blocker, and shows some promise. Uh, it's just a weird year to really judge all yeah. these young guys who are playing because Jimbo ends up leaving, and, and it was just this weird environment all around the program. Uh, next year, Trey McKitty jumps into a full-time role under Willie Taggart and his, his lethal simplicity offense uh, of, of being a, a full-time guy. He plays 663 snaps. So he goes from 91 to 600. It's a big jump. Yeah, they're, they're, for sure. And, and a new scheme, not the scheme he was necessarily recruited for. And they use him all over the place. So sometimes he's an inline tight end. Sometimes he's more in the backfield as like an H-back. Uh, the offensive line, by the way, is awful this year. It's, it's maybe, the, <laughs> maybe the worst in college football. He's power yeah. five. They were atrocious in 2018. Um, 
and, and, and he was also in the slot a lot as well. So they use him all over the place. He was productive, but just not super efficient, especially as a blocker. It just never really kind of materialized from you'd see these little signs where where he would make some nice plays either like after the catch or or um you know get in the open field and make some nice moves you see all the athleticism just never really puts it all together and then 2019 he has a new offensive coordinator it's Kendall Bryles it's a similar system to what Willie Taggart was was utilizing before but not quite yeah. the same so again this is a guy going talk about just weird program here three different offensive schemes in three different years for for Trey McKitty uh, he has a good year. He's solid, but they have to leave him back a lot to block because the offensive line is still an issue. They use him in game neighbors as, as blockers quite a bit. And uh, really they put Trey McKinney in some bad situations where he's having to get an iso on defensive ends a lot. And it's just not optimal for his skill set. So uh, to me, it was someone like he was – oh, and also in that 2019 season, uh, Chargers fans can, can Google this. They want, there was this like mini quote-unquote controversy where – Trey McKitty standing in the wrong direction. Oh have yeah, you, have you seen this? <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen the picture of it. I didn't know it was okay. him, but I yep, remember but... seeing the picture, going like, "What the hell is going on <laughs> down in Florida State?" It was a huge deal. It was just like another like, "Oh, this is just not what FSU needs." Kind of deal. They don't look like they know what they're doing. It was so overblown because basically, when Kendall Browse scheme is like with this tempo, they're running this crazy, crazy tempo, and you can go ahead and line up in a spot, and you can line up however you want, wherever you want. And then they like, well, uh, then they'll get you into the right formation and you move. So it was like, it didn't impact the play. It didn't do anything negatively. Uh, the play was actually like, actually went for like a nine yard gain too. So like, okay. but, but, the st- but the frame of like Trey standing in this direction uh, was like, people say like Trey didn't know what he's doing that. But you didn't know what he's doing. It just, it was kind of overblown. But so that was to kind of point out just the, the meat grinder that Trey McKitty was in during his FSU career. I think that uh, symbolizes it well, but Trey never really complained. He was always considered, uh, really kind of professional in how he handled himself and thoughtful, like I said, cerebral and uh, yeah, just just solid, steady guy who I think didn't quite live up to what they wanted him to be. But like I wouldn't uh-huh. say it was a disappointment either. I'll say this: that when he left, the fan base was like, "Ah, good riddance." But they also said the same thing about Landon Dickerson. And that, oh jeez, yeah. I died on that hill where I was like, "Yeah, you guys want Landon Dickerson?" Like, no, if he doesn't want to be here, we don't want him. And I was like, "All, all right." Like, I know he's injured a lot, but uh, but yeah. The, oh no, <laughs> there were some cultural issues at FSU where they weren't maximizing some of their their assets. Uh, but I will say this: when when Trey McKitty left for Georgia and he transferred, the new coaching staff, Mike Norvell's, they love utilizing tight ends. They get very creative with it and they mix between. Uh, pro style concepts and a lot of RPO things and things that are going on in the NFL now. Uh, Norvell's been very cutting edge with, and he loves utilizing a couple tight ends at once still. Mm-hmm. They were upset when Trey McKitty left. They really wanted to keep him. That would have been a big, big feather in their cap. And I think to utilize him in their offense uh, with Cam McDonald, who's very athletic, Trey would have been in line. He would have been able to move out some too, though. And um, a staff that I, that I, I value Mike Norvell's ability to evaluate talent. I value that, and and I think them seeing Trey McKitty as a loss at the time was something that stuck with me. Well, I, w- I would be interested in hearing then if I mean obviously it seems like it has worked out for Trey, but I kind of wonder if he maybe regrets that decision because I mean he only had I think seven catches, six catches this year at Georgia, so I kind of wonder what that process was like for him going from potentially an offense where he would have been featured to you know getting two or three targets a game if he was lucky. 
it, it, like you said, it worked out. Uh, and that's, again, kind of why I was just surprised by the draft status of him, of where he went, because he was used so much as a uh, as a blocker at Georgia. Now, apparently, like, yeah. I got the metrics in front of me. Like, his run block PFF grade is really good. It's 75.8 this past year at Georgia. I didn't watch a whole lot of Georgia football. Comparatively, he was between 45 and 58 in his three years at FSU previously. So, I think having a better supporting cast and better offensive line around to help out with blocking and more competency mm-hmm. where you're not like in not in not playing in space and, and blocking in space to where you're being left to, to guard a tight end or a defensive end one-on-one. I think all that helped Trey because he can catch the ball. He can adjust to the ball very well. He's not super like flexible. Like he's not like this, like kind of poetic in the air, adjust the ball, like uh, Antonio Gates type, but, but he is solid, good hands, uh, uses his body well. Um, and good straight line speed too, just not super wiggle, I guess. But but the blocking was the big question on him, and and I think the fact that he was able to do that at Georgia at a high level probably helps his draft stock at the end of the day. It certainly seems like it did. Man, the whole the whole experience for Trey McKitty, just all the full circles, you know, going to Georgia but getting fewer targets but improving as a blocker, just a, a fun journey to to listen to about Trey McKitty. So uh, we'll kind of wrap it up here. I'm, I think Chargers fans in general are very, very excited about Asante Samuel Jr. What do you think? I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about his mentality. Mm-hmm. On the field, what do you think the Chargers are getting in Asante Samuel Jr.? So I think the, the first thing is you're going to get someone who, one, super competitive, that is not going to back down. Uh, there's a clip that I put out in 2018, his freshman year, uh, against A.J. Dillon. A.J. Dillon either gets a toss or, or gets a stretch concept. He, he gets outside the tackle box, and he's in the open, starting to get in the open field. And Asante Samuel Jr. just closes in on A.J. Dillon. And there's about a 40 to 50 to maybe even 60-pound discrepancy between the two of them. I was going to say, yeah, it might be lowballing it. He, 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 he missile, yeah, because this is a true freshman trade, or uh, Asante Samuel Jr., excuse me. So he has this hit probably like a buck 75 at the time. Uh, he just missiles into A.J. Dillon's legs, undercuts them. I mean, you know, you take out anyone by the legs, that, that's going to work. But the fact he went in so fearlessly, didn't hesitate, got the tackle, uh, that's the lasting memory of, of an Asante Samuel play that I think is quintessential Asante Samuel. That's what you get with him is someone who's not going to back down. That doesn't mean he's always going to get the job done as a tackler. He does have the, the, the size uh, restriction. Um but effort isn't going to be an yeah. issue for him. Uh, as far as coverage skills, like he's really solid, uh, very quick feet, very technically sound there. I think he can be a little over-aggressive, a little handsy at times, but that's stuff you can kind of coach out a little bit. Uh, he also has the ability to play inside and play nickel, which I think is something that the Chargers GM have talked about too. They look at him as an outside-inside guy. But he can make no mistake, like he can play outside. That's what he did primarily at Florida State. They weren't always moving him into nickel. They 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 wanted him on the on the opponent's best wide receiver quite often. So uh, he's just really consistent, very steady. You know, I don't know if Asante Samuel Jr. ends up being a pro bowler or not. I, I would be shocked if he didn't have a 10-year career in the NFL, though. I think that he's a very safe prospect in that regard. Yeah, I love that. And honestly, the Chargers need uh, – it's, it's funny because I feel like the, the same way about Rashawn Slater and that you know, the two of them are – very similar in what they'll bring to the Chargers, I think, in terms of consistency, flexibility, and versatility. So uh, last one here, the Trey McKinney experience I've, I've learned has been uh, a wild ride in college. What do you think Chargers fans can look forward to uh, getting in on Trey McKinney as a professional player? Again, I think there's going to be a level of professionalism that he's going to bring to the organization. There's going to be some stability and some dependability there. So I do think there's a baseline of, like, if that's your tight end too consistently – I think you're going to be fine with that. Now, 
I'm not sure I'm sold on him becoming like your tight end one and, and eventually uh, becoming becoming a go-to guy there like for as like a as a primary target like how to use their tight end now. Uh, but I do think he's going to have a, a nice long NFL career as well. And I think the value of like you if you think you can see growth of him as an inline blocker, which is how they, apparently they're viewing him right now, and say okay yeah. he's going to do the dirty work for us. I, I think there's value there because there's still room to grow, but he has the frame. He has the willingness to do it. And he showed at Georgia, like in that type of system and in a pro style scheme, uh, he can make that growth. Um, but there's also pass passing production to be had with him as well. He's very quick to get downfield. Uh, again, not super like yard after the catch, wiggly type of guy, a little tight hipped, uh, but good hands, uh, good arm length, like good catch radius there. Uh, so I think there's a potential for him to just be a, a really nice, consistent, high-end tight end two, if not like a, a low-end tight end one, if, if you have a, another good tight end to complement with. But obviously the, the Chargers currently currently okay at tight end. Uh, but he'll be a really nice complimentary piece, I think, for, for a long time. Yeah, he, and he landed in a great spot. Obviously the Chargers have a, a great track record with tight ends. Um, they've got Jared Cook to, to take some pressure off of him, you know, initially. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see how that pans out. Uh, Brendan, this has been awesome, man. I think Chargers fans and our listeners are going to be very happy with the kind of background information that they've been getting today from uh, from Brendan on behalf of Asante Samuel Jr. and Trey McKitty. So thank you so much for joining us, man. And if you are a Florida State Seminole fan or interested in, in learning more about this budding pipeline the Chargers have, make sure and give a make sure and give a follow to Brendan on Twitter at Beast Unknown on Twitter and check him out on Knowles two four seven. Thanks again, Brendan. Oh, for sure. Thanks for having me. All right. So thanks again to Brendan for taking the time out to join us. Um, some great nuggets there, including Trey McKitty has a pilot's license. Um, you know, I think these college reporters have such a great insight into these players. They get to know them really well. Um, and, and so I think having these kind of conversations is just so beneficial to all of our listeners and to us because we get to learn more about them uh, without being able to speak to them. Yeah, and I think one of the early interviews that, that you did, and I think Jason was there too, but at least you, was Yogi Roth about this Justin Herbert kid. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, he, some of the questions that, that people had about his, his leadership and what kind of guy he was were really answered were by Yogi Roth in that mm-hmm. interview. And, of course, now you see that those issues were not were non-issues. Yeah. Um, so having that kind of insight with these guys who know them really well is really, really cool. So I love interviews like this for sure. All right, so we're going to move on now to just some kind of general takes away from the general takeaways from the draft, um, aside from the Chargers. And and I think for me, like the place that I wanted to start this conversation, uh, just in general, was the safety class. I think you know all three of us were kind of on board with the top of this safety class being Trayvon Merrig. Um, Obviously, you can include Jeremiah Wissakormo there, but Trayvon Merrig, Richie Grant, Javon Holland, all three players that we really really liked. And, you know, I'm sitting there each night writing an article for LAFB, and I'm like, man, there's so many good safeties on their board. There's so many good safeties on the board on each night. And the safeties just kept on falling. Like Trayvon Merrick was looked at as a round one lock. He ends up being the third safety off the board. So to me, that it just kind of shows that, you know, maybe the NFL and the player and the, you know, the front offices, they value things differently and so the way that they valued this safety class, a bunch of them went in round four and five, but, you know, the safety position at every single turn was falling down the board. And so 
that was a, a position that stuck out to me and something that really surprised me uh, last weekend. I will say that I don't know how this trend continues past this, but last year, and again, I didn't grade these players, but the first safety was taken to 36, um, all in the second round. So Xavier McKinney, Kyle Duggar, Grant Delpit, Antoine Winfield, these guys that I'm pretty sure at least like three or two of them were you know, regarded really pretty, as pretty good safety prospects. They fell. I don't know why they fell. I wasn't exactly in tune with that class. Um, but I think this kind of, you know, the biggest thing for me is the injuries. And that's part of why these guys fell. Not all of them, but the things that came out about players that we didn't know about. Didn't know Morag had a back issue. Didn't know Usukoromoa had a heart issue. Yeah. Didn't know John Johnson had an arrest on his record. Um, and so some of the things that pushed these guys back, didn't know about that. So I was surprised to see Holland going so early. But, you know, connected to my next point, just in general, these, these play like, I don't know if, if you felt this way last year, but it feels like this year to me, Again, this is the only class kind of that I've graded. It feels like more guys fell because of things that I didn't know about than, than previous years. You know, right. like why why is Jenkins falling? Oh, he has a hip. You know, why why is um you know Trey Smith falling? Oh, he has blood clots. You know, why are some of these guys falling? One guy, you know, Weaver had an eventual like he was arrested like the no not arrested but he was like charged. they filed the charge the day he was yeah, yeah they were charged you know the day that he was drafted. So um very very kind of wild wild draft so far overall. Yeah, I, I think that when you talk about the safeties, like, it's just, you know, there were, I mean, there was talk about Trevon Merrick maybe going in round one, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, then we figure out he has an injury, and then then you have six corners get drafted in round one, right? So it's it feels like teams were pretty clear uh, about valuing that premier kind of playmaker, um, even though safeties can kind of do a little bit of everything. Um, maybe teams just kind of valued them this draft. Um, but yeah, safety's definitely stuck out to me. Uh, obviously the stuff Tyler is talking about, like, Hey, this guy might fall all that. Um, I was honestly surprised when it came down to the first round in particular, just how little trade action there was. Um, yeah. Cause we saw a lot of talk about the Patriots trading up uh, a lot of talk about the chargers trading up. And then, you know, draft night comes and nothing really happened. I mean, the Eagles trade up and screwed the Giants, which was awesome. But um, other than that, nothing was kind of a, a big mover in the in the first round uh, other than teams trading back for guys that they knew they could get, um, something the Raiders maybe should have done. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was just surprised there was a little bit less um, action than previously anticipated. But, Maybe that's just kind of a traditional thing that happens in these classes. But I, I actually think that uh, Arjun said in his video the Chargers were like one of the only teams to not make a trade <laughs> this entire draft, yeah. uh, which is very, very, very Telesco-esque, kind of very um, conservative and all that. But, um, yeah, no, I, I was definitely a little bit surprised by that. Um, you know, I was a little bit surprised just by how much information was coming out now, as opposed to last year when it felt like we kind of still knew everything before the draft because of the combine, because of all that, like mm. Revan Jordan falling to round six oh. or, you know, yeah. or something like that. Like I could not have predicted that before the draft. Like I thought he was going third round latest, like that, that mm-hmm. was sort of my opinion. And then, you know, they talk about uh, his, his poor athletic testing in combination with some other issues like, you know, so um, that's something I was I, I was surprised by as well. Uh, just not just the difference between uh, so much the information we have, but also what the NFL's perception uh, on these players was, particularly in the later rounds. 
Did you see uh, how many tight ends were drafted before Revan Jordan? No, I haven't. There were eight. Eight tight ends drafted before Brevin Jordan, uh, <laughs> including that one from Ohio State that was like the blocking tight end, Luke Farrell. Yeah, wow. Luke Farrell went before him, man. Like that, that was one of the surprises of the draft. I, I think, obviously, I'm an offensive line guy, and, and we kind of knew going in that all these NFL teams were kind of all over the map in terms of offensive tackle rankings into your offensive line rankings, but to see Walker Little Ooh. go at pick 45, like. I know that, you know, Urban Meyer clearly had, like, a plan of, of drafting people that he recruited and had relationships with when they were high school juniors, which is just kind of a ridiculous way of going about the draft. But to see Walker Little and Jackson Carmen go before Dylan Radunes and Creed Humphrey and yeah. Samuel Cosme, like, to me, that was that was a surprise. The way that the offensive line class in general panned out was just really surprising to me. Obviously, you know, there's the Josh Myers thing, which – I'm still just like shaking my head at, <laughs> but the way in general, because like there was, I don't think there was a single person that had Jackson Carmen coming off the board at 46. And, you know, we kind of, we saw this thing from Duke Manningweather that teams were talking to Jackson Carmen about playing tackle. And now the Bengals are going to play him at guard. And so it's like, they're oh, really, they're, really, <laughs> they're going to play him at guard and they're going to stick uh righty rife at right tackle. So, um, the way the offensive line class in general just really, really surprised me. Again, Brendan Hymas falling to the fifth round when, you know, he was kind of regarded as a top 12, 15 offensive tackle or swing option. That was a surprise as well, obviously. There was also a lot of talk about, like, the opt-outs and, and the effect that that would have. And None. sort of felt, yeah, it really None. felt like it, it had no effect for, for most of the draft um, just because they got to watch these guys tape and still evaluate them based on that. Now, I do think there's part of it where, like, maybe a round four guy becomes, like, a round six or seven guy based on, like, opting out, but didn't affect Caleb Farley, um, obviously did not affect Rashawn Slater and Penny Sewell, um, didn't affect a lot of the guys who went, uh, you know, in the first three, four rounds of the class. Um, I do think maybe that something happened with, like, Carrie Vincent, who was at one point, like, a third, fourth round prospect, and then goes in round seven because he opted out, um, so that's probably a thing but yeah I, I was I was a little bit surprised about how much the opt-outs didn't matter just because of how old-fashioned NFL GMs are right. and how much they're like I like that Jalen Waddle played on a broken ankle and <laughs> I don't like that the other guys didn't want to play in this COVID season that we made up um, <laughs> you know so uh, I was a little bit surprised that that old man mentality didn't actually end up affecting it quite as much as people thought it did. Yeah, definitely. The other two, well, the plenty of things we can talk about, but the two I want to talk about are Gregory Russo and Jason Owe. I'm trying to look up where Gregory Russo went, but it was 30-something. 31. 31. No, so the Ravens took Owe at 31. Oh. So he must have gone like 30 then. Yeah, Bills. 30, 30 yeah. right? Yeah. Bills, yeah. So it's um, Turner at 28, Russo at 30 yeah. to the Bills, Owe 31 to the Ravens, and then Joe Tryon to the Buccaneers at 32. Yeah, Turner going early, Tryon kind of going early sort of makes sense. But, man, Owe going that early and, and basically be considered, not that the, they're two different teams, sure, but Owe being basically considered the same as Rousseau is a little bit a little bit off to me. I certainly would have rather taken someone like Rousseau. Like, about where Rousseau went is kind of, like, makes sense to me. He went, like, 30. I had him as, like, a 38th-ranked player or something. So that's kind of, like, fair. You know, a guy who has so many traits, had a lot of production, 
but not a lot of like on-field pass rush sort of moves. That that kind of made sense to me. But oh, oh, going that early, like Alex, I know you were, you know, you were kind of advocating for him, but certainly not at, at 31, right? Yeah, no, not at 31. But I do think you see a team like the Ravens, who is like, hey, this is our bread and butter. Like we take these yeah. guys with high athletic skill sets, and we're going to develop them. We don't care what anybody thinks about the pick, uh, and we're just going to, you know, go head on like. That's kind of what they do. And, and, you know, you see that run on edges. That was um, right. Turner, uh, also Rosso, also Tryon, right? So, like, all those guys could go in that range to defensive, you know, teams that are looking to kind of build their defense a little bit out, um, but obviously still have very good defense as, well, as it is already. Um, so I think they were like, hey, you know, we can afford to take a chance. We're probably going to be in the playoffs next year anyway. Um, and that's maybe how a team like the Ravens use OA or how a team like the Bills use uh, Rosso for sure. Yeah, the the Ravens, man, like, they're a winner, like, every single draft. Like, the way that they draft, I know that they traded uh, Orlando Brown, so they didn't really have a second-round pick. But let me pull up uh, their whole draft hall because I – every time I look at the Ravens draft, I'm just like, man, these guys just know how to win the weekend. Um, so they get obviously Rashad Bateman and Jason Owe, both for Odafe Owe uh, is is his actual name, I guess. So um, then they get Ben Cleveland in round three, Tylen Wallace, a receiver from Oklahoma State, who I really liked in round four, Sean Wade in round five, which uh, you know not a huge fan of him, but that's that's good value. Dalen Hayes, the edge rusher from Notre Dame, and then Ben Mason, the fullback from Michigan, and like I look at all all of those picks and I'm like, okay, like these guys are probably going to be really good for them and develop into some really good players. And, you know, I look at the way they attack the receiver position this year. You get a guy like Rashad Bateman who can separate over the middle. You get a guy like Tylen Wallace who can also separate, be a jump ball guy for Lamar Jackson. And, and I thought that they had a fantastic draft, uh, you know, kind of solving their issues like they always do. Yeah, I mean, another team that I think was just super good at that same division is is the Browns, where they just kind of retooled, reloaded, and, you know, now they have, you know, one of the best uh, secondaries, I mean, in the league, and they also have Miles Garrett and Jadavion Clowney, right, coming at you. So that, I think, is just, I mean, you know, kind of super insane to think about that they're going to be even better than they were last year in, in this attempt to make a run at the Chiefs and make a run at the Bills. Like, I think they they put themselves, frankly, in that tier this weekend with all of the moves that they made. Um, it's just crazy to see the haul that they got. Yeah, Newsom, Awusu-Koromoa, Schwartz, Hudson. Like, you, they were reading the minds of Chargers draft Twitter. <laughs> Some of these guys, it's like... Tony Fields. Tony Fields. Yeah, yeah Tony Fields. Um, what else from this draft stood out? I don't know. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad that I called Nick Neiman in the sixth. Like, that was, <laughs> that was an awesome. ironic selection. That was awesome. Um, Aline McNeil over Shelvin makes sense. Oh, I just want to talk about, we talked about this before the show, Stephen, but Cameron Bynum not being a seventh rounder. That yeah. never made sense to me. That's why he was my pick almost every single time I got to the seventh round because it did not make sense to me. I understand not like as a second round pick. Um, but he ended up going in the fourth round or yeah, third round? Fourth. Yeah, he went I think early in the fourth, yeah. Yeah, that's just about right to me. So I'm happy he went in a little bit earlier. Um, Aaron Banks in the second was a little odd to me. Like, I understand that there's, you know, some good work there. And maybe, like, going in, like, the back end of the second. But he went pretty early, right, before the Chargers picked, maybe? Yeah, he was at, he was the Niners. I think it was – I can pull it up. But um, yeah. it was, like, in the high 30s. Mm-hmm. 
Um, definitely didn't think Trey Smith was going to go all the way as far as he did. It's kind of yeah. a shame. Like I, I still thought he would go back end of the third round. He went late. And, of course, he goes to the Chiefs and joins Humphrey. So that <laughs> is know. going to absolutely work out in their favor. Um, the Cowboys taking Parsons completely makes sense for all the all the reasons. All the um, reasons. Yeah. Deami Brown at 82. Like he would like friendly Weissman on the show or not on the show, but friend of the show said, you know, he could go like he mocked the chart Brown to the Chargers at 47. He went 82. That was a surprising fall to me as well. well I there think, so, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say, when you talk about like all the injuries, like Trey Smith and stuff, I wonder just not having the combine, not having mm-hmm. all that uh, stuff, you know, probably that made teams be like, yeah, like if this guy is, you know, has this issue, he's just not on our board because we didn't get to meet him and we didn't get to do any of the stuff and our only interaction with him, you know, was on Zoom, right? So, um, you know, for for most of these teams and talking to guys. So I I just feel like that was what made Trey Smith, you know, a third rounder to a sixth rounder, right? Or, you know, made another guy fall, right? Because, you know, if this was next year's draft where, you know, hopefully we have a combine next year and hopefully it's a normal draft process. Uh, I don't know if that happens because maybe a team feels more confident and it's like, you yeah, know, I'll take Trey Smith in the fourth, right. Uh, comparatively to what happened this year. So um, I think the, the lack of information that teams have, um, and it was funny to see people in the YouTube comments be like, you guys don't have the information that Telesco and Staley have. It's like, this is actually <laughs> the least information that Tom Telesco has ever had yeah. uh, going into a draft, not just him, but all GMs in the NFL in general. So I think that having that little information and having that, you know, cloud of uncertainty certainly changed a few picks. Uh, so, Tyler, to answer your question, Aaron Banks at 48th overall. So, right after right the Chargers after. took his Hyundai Samuel Jr. Yep. Um, yeah, you know, Cameron Bynum, everybody knows how I felt about him. I, I was a huge, huge fan of his. Um, I think he landed in a really good spot in Minnesota. You know, they've have, they have such a good reputation of developing, you know, defensive acts. And if he's able to kind of play that strong safety, you know, nickel linebacker, I think that, that would be a, a good spot for him. So, uh, Tyler, any thoughts, any other thoughts before we wrap up today's show? Uh, just a quick thought. You know, at this point now, it depends on where the players went. So, like, yeah. I think Slater can have a better – not that the Chargers are really good at developing linemen, but, like, I think he could probably have a better career than, than Sewell in Detroit. And I think that Sertan's probably in a better spot with Denver than Horn. And I had Sewell higher. Yeah. I had Horn higher. But now it depends on where, you know, where guys go. So when, when everyone pulls up our big boards from this past year – in a year from now, remember that it's also about where they go. That's why Herbert won Rookie of the Year. Not that the coaching situation was all that great, but he had a lot of talent around him. So um, I'm really interested to see where these guys went and then how that plays into their development and you know whether we're right or wrong about these guys kind of based on their development. Yeah, J.C. Horn to the Panthers was one of my least favorite landing spots. Yeah. You know, it, it made no sense because they play so much zone coverage, and, and that's not what you're drafting J.C. Horn to do, man. Like So Horn to the Panthers, like, thank you. First of all, um, but also like it, it just didn't make any any other sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I would just say like the uh, quarterbacks, right? Like all of that is just so much. Where do they end up? Like is Justin yeah. Fields better off in Chicago than you know uh, Zach Wilson is in New York? I have no idea because I do kind of trust Robert Sala and the Lafleur brother over Matt Nagy at this point yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that helps somebody like Zach Wilson, but also I do think Justin Fields obviously is more talented. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about this the other day 
people were kind of uh, crushing the Broncos for not taking Justin Fields. And that's something that you can see in a year, two years from now, coming back to bite them in the ass. Obviously, Justin Fields is really good. Um, But it got me thinking, if the Chargers had not taken Justin Herbert last year and they did take Jedrick Wills or Isaiah Simmons, what would our immediate draft grade have been, higher or lower? Of the ch- wait, so if they took if they took Isaiah Simmons or Jedrick okay. Wills over Justin Herbert last year, would your well I wasn't on the show, but would your guys' draft grade have been higher or lower than when they took Herbert? I mean, I had a B plus, so I mean, to me, like I liked that pick. It was it was the Joshua Kelly pick that really tanked right. that draft yeah. for me, and the losing the picks like that tanked the draft for me. It it could have been higher, of course. It depends on what they do after right. that. But like getting, if they had taken like Tristan Wirfs and got a freaking All Pro, you know, right. even love like yeah, the grade probably would have been higher because they yeah. needed a tackle. He would have been a good tackle. It was a good prospect. Uh, would it have been higher? I mean, I gave it a B plus last year, so I don't know what I, I, I really don't know. The well, issue, uh, yeah, I mean, no, I was, just, I was just asking that to say like you know we didn't like Herbert last year, and then a year <laughs> goes by and we like Herbert now, right? Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> and we wouldn't have changed that um, for the world. Mm-hmm. So like the Broncos passing on certain or uh, on Fields will only come back to bite them in the ass if Fields is really good, right? right? And then you know that that that'll take place. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking like immediately after the 2020 draft, if they took Simmons in comparison to if they took Herbert. I probably would have given it a slightly higher grade at the time. So, yeah, it definitely is a factor of where these guys go, what weapons they have around them, especially when you're talking about the quarterbacks. Yeah, I think I would have, you know, if they had gotten Jedrick Wills, I would have given them probably a higher grade, maybe a little bit. But, you know, the thing with taking a quarterback is is that bumps up the value aspect of things. So um, the issue with the 2020 draft isn't who they took first, because I would have loved Jedrick Wills or Tristan Wirfs. The issue is what they did after that. So, right. uh, yeah. which we've we've obviously seen now, you know, with you know Joshua Kelly being benched for Kalen Blage and Kalen and KJ Hill and, and Joe Reed not being able to see the field, and so we'll we'll have to see if the, anything of, the, of those players changes. But um, you know, and the first round was not the problem for the Chargers last year; it was everything else that came after that. Um, but yeah, and of course, if the Broncos end up trading Patrick Sertan for Aaron Rodgers, then I, I think that works out for them. Uh, but we'll have to cover that if there's anything else that happens. So, uh, guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. As always, make sure and leave us a rating or a view and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Make sure, like I said, if you're watching us on YouTube, go check out uh, the interview with Brendan Sanone. Some great content there. Can't thank him enough for joining us. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.